We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 322 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 14, Recovery and Conclusion. The men of Apollo 14 came back down to Earth this afternoon. They've covered more than a million miles, and they brought home a load of rocks that may be four billion years old. The splashdown was right on target in the Pacific Recovery Area. The three flyers of Apollo 14 are back and safe after a highly successful flight. They brought back about 100 pounds of moon, the biggest haul so far for geologists and others to pore over and learn more about the origins and structure of the moon and perhaps of the Earth. They landed this afternoon in the South Pacific, due east of Australia, on time and on target, and in sight of the recovery carrier, the New Orleans. The television pictures from the carrier by satellite were the best they've ever been. From the previous episode, we left the crew of Apollo 14 immediately after splashdown, still in the command module, floating in the Pacific Ocean. Next, the recovery team quickly made it to the capsule. Divers put on the floating collar around the command module and continued the recovery process. Here are the highlights from NBC News and their special guest, Apollo 12's Alan Bean. What we're looking at is a picture taken from a helicopter. The carrier, New Orleans, is five miles away. They landed five miles away from the carrier. The average distance from the carriers has been 3.8 miles. So there's our spacecraft, safe, sound. The astronauts inside have told us that they're in good shape. It's floating there, back to the moon, carrying three men and a hundred pounds of moon. In a few minutes, when this operation is finished, the helicopters will lift them out with a kind of hoist and take them over to the deck of the tunnel. As we listen to this, I wonder if Captain Dean, if there's any chance of seasickness inside. Looks like they're swelling pretty well there. I'll tell you, if they uh, just come from being on Earth for a long time and got in there, you're right, they probably get a little seasick or maybe even more than that. But I think uh, being out in space in the zero-G for even two or three days helps you in this regard. I think your, uh, your mind quits listening to your inner ear because it's getting a lot of funny sensations in zero-G. The fluid is floating around there, and after a couple of days, it sort of ignores that, that sense. So when we get on the water, we're pretty happy about it. 
And the swimmer reports that the uh, sea anchor has been deployed. He'll be returning to the uh, spacecraft. Prior to attempting to attach the flotation collar, the uh, procedure will be to uh, cut the shroud line, separating the parachute from the spacecraft. Commander Shepard will be the last, Captain Shepard will be the last to leave. What is the last thing he does? Or is it all done before the hatch pops open? It's pretty much uh, done before any of the, any of the three guys can get out. The last thing you do is, the last thing you do is uh, pull the circuit breakers on the last battery. The batteries they use now for communication, pull those out, and then uh, come on out in the raft. The last man out usually helps the uh, swimmer close the hatch, but the flat hatches are hard to close. What's the feeling coming from the atmosphere, the atmospheric conditions within the capsule, coming out to an 81 degree temperature? Swimmer now cutting the shroud lines, uh, attaching the parachute to the spacecraft. Uh, one shroud line still remaining. You step outside and see the clouds, which is kind of amazing, and the whole ocean before you, and you look over to the right, and there's two or three helicopters running around, and then there's a beautiful ship on the horizon. The whole thing is quite a magnificent sight. When you step down now, do you have any funny sensation uh, walking on the moon, getting used to walking back on Earth? You do. You're a little bit uh, unstable. I, I think if you just said, uh, I think I'll take a chance and go ahead and walk, you wouldn't have any problem. But uh, you're sort of afraid you might trip and people will see you on TV and then they say, oh, he's got a moon disease or something. So you tend to be very, very careful. And so you'll watch everybody. They're very ginger. They put their hand on the rails. And I don't think you really need it. You just want to make sure you don't make a mistake. Finally, all three astronauts emerged from their capsule. Uh, General, I just want to interrupt you. The hatch is open now. Maybe you can help us identify who's first out. I'm sure that'll be difficult to do. Unless you can see Stu Russo's red hair. You think maybe uh, rank will be pulled on him? <laughs> Isn't it customary, though, for uh, the commander to come out last? Yes. from that that Edwardon wasn't having any trouble with his legs. Sure can. The other three astronauts are aboard. Captain Alan Shepard, last one in. Almost 10 years ago he was doing the same thing in the South Atlantic. And we'll rejoin the coverage as they head back toward the helicopter right after this message from Gulf. With all three astronauts aboard the helicopter, they made their way to the recovery carrier USS New Orleans. Three flyers aboard the helicopter on their way to the carrier. The recovery helicopter back on deck now and the flight deck crew working to make sure it's firmly anchored through the deck. There is that
on the hangar deck of the New Orleans and the helicopter has been lowered on the elevator. We'll be rolled off and then there will be a little ceremony welcoming the flyers back from the moon. The helicopter just about back in the right spot for the astronauts to be allowed out of the helicopter. Down these stairs, and these are historic stairs, though they may not appear to be. Those stairs have felt the tread of every man who's ever walked on the surface of the moon. The hatch opening now, and here they come, the Apollo 14 astronauts, waving. Obviously glad to be back, glad it's over, looking forward to getting all the way home once again. Posing for pictures now, Ellen Shepard and Mitchell and Stuart Russo. And as a physician entering the quarantine facility with them, and a Once in the quarantine trailer, the astronauts answered a few questions. Shepard was first to praise the recovery efforts. And uh, let me re-echo your words about that fantastic recovery. Listen, uh, we, were, we were still trying to get ready to get out when the, when the boys were ready to have us. I don't think we've had a recovery as uh, handled as efficiently and as speedily and as neat and clean as that one. We were just tickled with it and uh, we appreciate it very much. Of course, uh, we did come kind of close to the target area, but that may be, may be incidental. <laughs> And Ed Mitchell described the magnificent desolation of the moon. And I know that uh, the crew would very much appreciate hearing, uh, perhaps, Ed, you could tell us what you thought was the most impressive thing as you made your moonwalks out there. What, what really struck you the most? I don't think you one can ever be prepared, Admiral, uh, either by prior description or photograph for the starkness, the uh, desolation, and at the same time the magnificence of the landscape that you see when you step out on the surface. The sky, as opposed to the beautiful blue we have here, is coal black, with no atmosphere, it's absolutely black. Uh, and compared with a very sharp horizon, which is brown or, or gray, depending upon the lighting at that particular moment. And it is so clear, and it is so stark, and the shadows are so sharp, not, not uh, softened by atmosphere in any way, that it is probably the most uh, stark scene of desolation one can imagine, and yet completely magnificent. And, and they're very Alan Shepard's wife, Louise, was elated after watching on TV as Shepard boarded a Navy ship bound for Houston, where he would be safe behind the glass windows of the post-flight quarantine room. She was relieved, exhausted, and proud, proud of her old man Moses, because he made it to his promised land. The Apollo 14 astronauts will arrive home in Texas on Friday, but will remain in quarantine until about the end of the month. 
When the astronauts made it back to Houston quarantine in the Lunar Receiving Lab, they were rewarded with overflowing breakfast trays. Shepard and his two crewmates enjoyed breakfast as they read the paper and drunk coffee, still isolated from the rest of the world, still in a world of their own. Shepard had been a good eater. During his nine days in space, he ate just about everything there was to eat. He popped open cans of beans, squirted water into bowls of dehydrated soup, peeled the wrappers off granola bars. In fact, after nine days in space, despite the strenuous and sweaty two-mile round-trip hike to Cone Crater, Shepard returned to Earth one pound heavier than when he left. Every other astronaut before him had lost weight, sometimes a lot. Jim Lovell, during his terrifying Apollo 13 mission, had lost an amazing 14 pounds. John Glenn had lost 4 pounds during his tension-filled 4-hour flight back in 1962. That was a pound an hour. Even Shepard's crewmate, Stu Rusa, lost 10 pounds over the course of Apollo 14. The fact that Shepard was, as the New York Times put it, the first man to gain weight while in space, fascinated NASA scientists and made for a curious story in that day's newspaper. Of course, when the crew arrived at the Lunar Receiving Laboratory to wait out the rest of their quarantine, they brought along a haul of rocks and photographs that made the geologist ecstatic. But their enthusiasm was tempered by the fact that Shepard and Mitchell hadn't documented their finds as well as the scientists had expected. On the moon, Mitchell radioed the geologist that one of the rocks he collected would be easy to recognize because it had a definite shape. But, as one geologist told a reporter, all rocks have a definite shape, and in the lunar receiving lab, Mitchell could not identify this one among the other samples. And although he and Shepard were trained to photograph rocks in place before collecting them, they had only documented a few samples in this manner. In the weeks to come, the scientists would have to try to locate the rocks in the astronauts' panoramic photos. Meanwhile, using standard triangulation methods, some of the scientists had analyzed the pictures from Shepard and Mitchell's climb up Cone Crater and had plotted the path of the two men. The results showed that Shepard and Mitchell came within only 65 feet of the rim. Mitchell was furious when he heard that. Ironically, he and Shepard had come the closest after they had abandoned their search, when they walked down the slope to the strange white rocks. If they had continued another 20 yards to the northwest, they would have been staring into the enormous pit. Shepard and Mitchell had already paid up on the bet with Cernan and Ingle, but the geologists did them one better. They sent a case of scotch into quarantine. As far as they were concerned, 65 feet was close enough. Gordon Swan got a laugh from Shepard when he said during a debriefing, You weren't lost, and you didn't know it. 
CBS News learned that Ed Mitchell during the flight conducted an experiment in ESP, extrasensory perception, or thought transference. Mitchell Long has been fascinated with that subject, and he arranged the experiment with a Chicago engineer, also an ESP hobbyist. Mitchell concentrated in random order on five cards he took with him, apparently. You'll learn when he gets back whether the Chicagoan got the message. One quarantine morning, as Shepard was reading the newspaper, a headline caught his eye. It said, Astronaut conducts ESP experiment on moon flight. Shepard had read enough inaccuracies in the press to immediately distrust the story. He shook his head, then looked up from his breakfast, and said, Hey, Ed, did you see this? Isn't it amazing the things that people make up? Mitchell had always kept his deeper feelings about spaceflight to himself. He regarded outer space more philosophically than most of the other astronauts, who were strongly tech-minded. Though he had enviable scientific credentials, Mitchell had always considered the cosmos something larger than himself, something incomprehensibly big. Years later, he admitted that a trip to the moon was more than a science experiment for him, more than an aeronautical adventure. It was a mystical experience. Right now, he had no choice but to tell Shepard the truth. He simply said, I did it, boss. Mitchell made no apologies or explanations, and Shepard just stared at him a few moments. Shepard said later that he had no idea about Mitchell's experiments, that he was surprised and might have even nixed the plan if he had learned about it in advance. But that morning, still buzzing from a successful mission, Shepard just nodded and smiled a bit, then returned to his newspaper, eggs and bacon. Mitchell later compared his ESP test to Shepard's golf shot saying, he did his thing, and I did my thing. Once freed from their quarantine, the three astronauts surfed a tidal wave of parades, galas, ceremonies, and television appearances, capped off by the invitation to Nixon's White House for dinner. Although Shepard was a fairly consistent Republican, he was not a big fan of Nixon, who he felt didn't know anything about space, and was far less interested in NASA than his Democratic predecessors, and was guilty of letting Washington's support for the space program lag. That night at the White House, Nixon kept up the tradition of promoting astronauts. Mitchell became a Navy captain, and Rusa became an Air Force lieutenant colonel but Navy rules prevented him from promoting Shepard from captain to admiral. In place of a promotion, Nixon commended Shepard and the first celestial hole-in-one by inducting him into the Distinguished Order of Lunar Duffers, despite the fact that Shepard's first two swings were embarrassing failures. But Nixon did promise Shepard he would find a way to make him an admiral eventually. A month later, he made good on his promise. In late April 1971, 
from a list of 2,000 Navy captains, Nixon approved the promotion of 49 of those captains to the exalted rank of Rear Admiral. Among the names was Shepard's, the only astronaut to make Admiral, and among the few Navy Admirals who never commanded a ship. Shepard's father, Bart, was thrilled to learn that his son had reached the pinnacle of the Navy's hierarchy. From then on, just as his father had insisted on being addressed as Colonel, Shepard asked to be called Admiral, even by his children. Shepard's celebrity also led to an invitation from George H.W. Bush, then the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, to serve as a delegate. The friendship between Shepard and Bush dated back to when they had been neighbors in Houston's wealthiest suburb. They had recently met again at a UN meeting in San Francisco where they talked about how great it would be to take the UN Security Council into space and ask each member to point out his country. He wouldn't be able to find it because there were no political boundaries, Shepard told Bush. As a planet, we are so small and unified. Across two months with the UN delegation in New York, Shepard took part in an eight-hour session that led to mainland China being voted into the UN. In the hall and at a cocktail party, he signed autographs and tried to tell UN members what a fragile, beautiful place the Earth was when viewed from space. It's too bad there are so many people on Earth who can't get along, he said. When all the accolades and the public appearances had settled down, the appearances with Bob Hope before troops in Vietnam, the invitations to prize fights, the Broadway plays, the drunken night in New York with Lauren Bacall, and the overtures from politicians trying to lure him into politics. Alan, Louise, and their daughters traveled to New Hampshire for a much-needed respite. There, Alan attended a retirement ceremony for his favorite high school teacher and hosted a 50th wedding anniversary for his parents at a nearby country club. One night during their stay in New Hampshire, Louise and the girls worked in the kitchen cleaning up after dinner while Alan and his father, Bart, the admiral and the colonel, sat in the living room sipping snifters of brandy. In the corner stood the pipe organ where Bart still played each day. A reminder of the Saturday afternoon so long ago when Alan trundled along with his father to the church and helped him tune the 600 pipes of the huge church organ. Over the years, Bart had continued running his small-town insurance agency, driving a half-mile to work in the same office, lunching at the same restaurant day after day, year after year. His son, meanwhile, sailed aboard Navy ships to all corners of the globe, flew jets at supersonic speeds and superhuman heights, drove Corvettes, rocketed to space, and golfed on the moon, arguably one of the most eloquently traveled men alive. And yet Allen had developed an admiring respect for his father's consistently homespun and simplified lifestyle. My father's example was he led a good life, Shepard would one day admit. That evening after dinner, 
father and son talked about Shepard's promotion to Admiral, about his plans for the future and about the moon. At one point, Bart turned to his son and said, Do you remember when you first told us back in 1959 that you were going to become an astronaut? Yes, sir, Alan said. Do you remember what I said? Yes, sir, I certainly do, Alan said. In fact, Alan would never be able to forget Bart's admonitions about veering off his Navy career and how he had felt as though he was tearing the family apart with his risky enrollment in NASA. You were not in favor of it, Shepard said. Well, Bart said, his voice a little shaky as he raised his glass of brandy in a toast. I was wrong. After the excitement died down for Stu Rusa, he went to Downey to thank the workers at North American who had built the Apollo 14 command module. In a comment that rightfully belonged not only to the astronauts but to Mission Control, one manager told Rusa, you saved the space program. But within the scientific community, that news was greeted with skepticism. Ever since the first lunar landing, NASA had been criticized for failing to include scientists on Apollo missions. On the day Apollo 14 arrived in lunar orbit, a leading figure in lunar science, Caltech geologist Eugene Shoemaker, was in London to provide televised commentary on the mission for the BBC. At a press conference with an embittered Gordon Cooper, Shoemaker blasted NASA for doing a completely miserable job in integrating scientific goals into the moon program. To Shoemaker, who had always believed that the purpose of sending humans into space was to make discoveries, the potential of Apollo's $24 billion undertaking was being wasted. But NASA was well aware of the criticisms voiced by Shoemaker and other scientists. Only three more lunar landings remained, but they had been planned to answer the scientists' frustrations. With those missions, Apollo would figuratively and literally reach its greatest heights. Salutations from the Hawkeye State. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 322 of the Space Rocket History podcast entitled Apollo 14, Recovery and Conclusion. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. If you're looking for old episodes, the first 150 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. First of all, I need to announce that we will have an Encore episode next week so I can get the camper and us, hopefully in one piece, all the way back home in the foothills of North Carolina. I'm running a little long this episode. You know, I always try to keep it to around 30 minutes, so I will not share too many afterthoughts. 
Now, this is the last episode for Apollo 14, so in two weeks, after next week's encore, we will begin covering some other important space flights that occurred in 1971. Then, before you know it, we'll be back onto Apollo 15. Also want to apologize for the quality of some of those clips. Hope you could make out the voices. As I said, it was NBC for the recovery, and I thought it was pretty cool that they had Al Bean there to add some relevant commentary. Hope you enjoyed that. Also want to apologize for the noisy rain that you might have heard during the latter part of the podcast. When you're out here in the campground, you sometimes have to take what you can get, and in comparison with the other noises, rain didn't seem to be so bad. In the past, we've had to deal with loud people having parties next door, people setting up or taking down their camp, children screaming, trains, planes, lawnmowers, weed trimmers, leaf blowers, chainsaws, cars, trucks, RV buses, dogs barking or howling, wind noise, and even one time, a monkey. So, hopefully, (laughs) the rain wasn't that bad. Well, folks, sadly, we had no no new financial support come in this week. So, for the second time this year, we have a zero week. That is kind of discouraging. We also lost a Patreon donor, so we are at 238 with a goal of reaching 300 for 2019. Our total donors for 2019 are still at 427 with a goal of reaching 600 for 2019. So if you're enjoying the content provided here and are financially able, please consider supporting the podcast. To do so, go to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. For the 427 of you who have already donated for 2019, I certainly appreciate it. This week, we're giving away the SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. Here's Mrs. SRH with the weekly donor drawing. Thanks, Mike. Hello, everyone. I am happy to announce this week's winner of the SRH logo magnet. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Stephen or rather that could be Stefan Schultz. Stefan Schultz, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell us your address, we will mail this out to you. Thank you to all 427 of you who have contributed thus far in 2019. Okay, folks, that's all we have for this week. Remember, there will be an encore episode next week, and then episode 323. So long for now.